Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of The Josh Carr Show. Today, I am honored to be joined by Anna Strasberg. Anna, I just want to jump right into it with you, and I want to talk a lot you know, later in the interview about your 3,000-mile trek across the United States on bike uh, and running, I think, as well. But I kind of want to get into the nitty-gritty of some of what's going on in the pro-life movement right now. Uh, especially what's going on in Alabama specifically. I'm wondering if you could share some of your insights into what went on there and kind of your perspective perspective on IVF. Well, this is a, a huge deal in Alabama because um, the IVF industry, basically what they do, and not in every case, but in most cases, they will create a ton of embryos and then they'll look at these different embryos and they'll select the best embryo, which is eugenics, um, a perfect display of eugenics. They'll select the finest embryo or multiple, the best ones, and implant them in the mother. And then she might have four, three, four, five kids implanted in her. And then they will do selective reduction, which is a nice term for abortion. They will reduce the number. So if they had four, they'll reduce it down to twins maybe, maybe one, a boy or a girl, depending on what the mom wants. So this whole industry is about creating humans, not creating embryos as they want to call it. They are embryos, but they're creating actual humans. We have to look at the fact that these are unique human beings who are distinct from their mother and their father, unique human beings who will grow up to be just like you and just like me, who are worthy of our dignity and respect. They're creating them discarding them, aborting them, freezing them. Um, there are actually court cases over custody of these children. Um, and so this whole industry is not respecting of life whatsoever. And I, I do want to pause and say I, I grieve with parents who can't have kids naturally. Like, that is so sad. But the truth of the matter is that children have a right to their parents, but parents do not have a right to children. We do not have a right to have children. That is not, that is not our right. Children, again, have a right to their parents, but parents do not have that same right to children. And the IVF industry has really just made it so that people think that they have a right to these kids just because they can't have kids. And that's not true. We don't create children in a lab to be discarded, frozen, or done with, with whatever we want, or to be selected because they might have better genes or better qualities or the gender that you want. I was just reading a case on parents who had three boys, and so they discarded all their boy embryos trying to get a girl embryo. It's, it's, so, it's, it's just complete eugenics right in front of us. So Alabama recognizing that these are children from the moment of conception, from the moment of fertilization is so important. I think not just for hopefully helping take down the IVF industry and in all of the ways it disregards human life, but also for helping people realize in the pro-life movement that these are children worthy of respect from the moment of fertilization. So yeah, with that, I wanted to ask you because IVF, my understanding, I don't really know the exact numbers on it, but my understanding is that most people who are pro-life are pro-IVF. What steps, I guess, what do you think is in their mind? Like, where are they drawing the line? Because one of my struggles, and I think I agree with you on this, is that you have to draw the line at conception. And, and scientifically, that's just a fact that life begins at conception. But what do you think is going on in their minds when they think that, you know, somehow because they're just not, as I heard you speak in Orlando, just because something is not further developed, somehow they don't have a right to life, even though they are pro-life. Where's that coming yes. from? And I, I think a lot of people just don't understand all the nitty gritty. They don't understand how many children are being discarded. They don't understand the selective reduction, which is abortion. They don't actually take time. So what they see and what they think is happening is that these poor couples, and, and believe me, I'm grieving with them, cannot have children. And now we've scientifically advanced so they can have children. So that's what they see. They're like, oh, these couples who are infertile, wow, this is an amazing thing. But when you actually look into it, 
they aren't, they aren't just getting children. They're creating children in a lab and then leaving them, like I said, to be frozen or to die or to be reduced, reduced through abortion. And a lot of people are like, well, IVF is just like adoption. So here's the difference. Adoption is restoring something that was broken. So a child whose parents passed away, a child whose parents couldn't raise them. You take a child who's already created, who's already born, who has very unfortunate circumstances, and you restore that relationship. You give them a relationship that they otherwise wouldn't have. Whereas IVF is creating children, creating them and creating broken situations, creating children to be discarded, like I said, creating children to be fought over in custody battles, whether it remain on ice for who knows how many years. We're creating children to come into difficult situations versus an adoption where you're taking children out of difficult situations and restoring. So I think a lot of people view the IVF industry as the savior of couples who can't have children. But when you really look at it, you see that it's a lot more sinister than that. And I just think they need to be told. They need to be shown the facts. And I think very quickly, a lot of people who are pro-life we'll see, oh, I'm, I'm pro-life. I just didn't realize, a lot of people I talked to, they just didn't realize that these children were being killed. You alluded in your first response to the fact that it's called an embryo, but in reality, it really is you know, a baby and a, and a child. Um, do you think that there's a concerted effort from the left to kind of change the language? I mean, there's a lot of examples of this, but specifically in the abortion industry, uh, where they're trying to change the language in order to achieve certain goals. Yes, I think in any culture throughout all of history, you can see examples repeatedly. Like, for instance, American slavery, where, where African-Americans were called property versus humans. And it's easier anytime you have that to dehumanize people or with Jews. They were called rats during the Holocaust versus people. Why? Because it's easier to kill a rat. It's easier to work a rat to death than a human being or a child right in front of your eyes. So yes, we do have the first single cell as I go. We have the embryo. Then we have the fetus. These are all technical scientific terms for babies inside the womb. But the same, you could go outside the womb and say, well, we have a newborn. We have an infant. We have a toddler. So they're not really children. Like the argument doesn't hold water. It doesn't make sense. Those are just their development. They're all humans. It's scientifically proven as a scientific fact from the moment of fertilization that we have a new distinct human being that's already come into existence. So there's, there's this whole idea that, oh, it's a fetus. I had somebody comment that on my pages uh, a while ago. Oh, it's a fetus at six weeks. I'm like, well, first of all, you're scientifically wrong. It's not a fetus at six weeks. It's actually an embryo. And so what? Like, can I discard my newborn because they're, they're a newborn? They're, they're all children. They're all the same child. They're just different developments. They're different stages. And each one needs to be equally protected from the moment of fertilization. So going into kind of what went on in Alabama, a lot of people are saying that due to, um, I don't know, what's considered maybe more extreme pro-life position, this is going to be detrimental towards the pro-life kind of at large, like nationwide movement. Do you subscribe more to the philosophy of we should take it as far as we can when we can because we're protecting life? Or do you kind of go the other direction, which is we need to be extra strategic about this and kind of make small stepping stones towards a pro-life nation? Okay, so sometimes when people ask me this, I think there's two ways to go about it. I think where we can, we're aggressive, we protect life as best as possible. We do everything that we can to make sure life is protected from fertilization. So if, if the only step we can take forward is a small step, I still rejoice. I rejoice in, in the the restrictions we have on abortion in Florida, even though it's not from fertilization. I rejoice that there are some restrictions. Would I want them to go further? Absolutely. Will I campaign until they go further? Absolutely. But that doesn't mean we can't celebrate small victories. So if this is a this victory, I celebrate. 
if we take big strides, even if it divides for a while, I think ultimately it shows people the value of life. Ultimately, it shows people that these are children being indefinitely frozen. And it makes them think about these other children who are being you know, torn limb from limb or having their nutrition and their oxygen stopped from being given to them with the abortion pills in the first trimester. I think it shows us how much these children matter. So yes, I do rejoice when small incremental things happen. And I, I'm excited when, when we pass laws that even at 20 weeks, even at 15 weeks, yes, those are great strides, but I would definitely be for pushing as far as we can because ultimately these children, we're the only ones they can rely on. If we don't stand, if we don't protect them from fertilization, no one will. Now we will continue to have a culture of death that discards children, that thinks we have a right to children, that thinks that they, we don't have to be mothers, that we don't have to protect our children. And it just, this culture grows and it darkens and it deepens until we do draw a line. So I would say, yes, I, I am for the more strict restrictions and I'm willing to see the repercussions come from that. But I'm also not on the side that says no law is good. You know, I think, I think laws are good. I think, you know, a 15 week ban is better than no ban. If that's what we, if that's what we can get. And then we keep fighting from there. So I, this is a question I really wanted to ask you. This is something I hear. I unfortunately, so I, I, I live in Utah and Utah ought to be like the most pro-life state. And maybe it, maybe it still is, but there's unfortunately a lot of people here that are not as pro-life as I would want them to be, especially in such a religious community. Um, the prevailing counter argument that I'm hearing to pro-life is that it's simply a ploy from men, mostly men to control women's bodies. And whenever I look at a political issue, I try to break down the incentives there. Like if there are no incentives, it's probably BS. And that goes on both sides. I mean, there's a lot of conservative talking points. That I'm like, I don't really know why, you know, leftists would want to do that. I don't think that's real. And so when I hear this counter argument of men just want to control women's bodies, I don't really understand like, like as a man, I don't really understand what I stand to gain by not allowing someone to get an abortion other than just protecting life. And so uh, I'm just curious what, like almost, if you could almost steel man their argument, why do you think that they're saying this? Is there any kind of truth to the fact that men might be trying to control women's bodies? Absolutely not. I, I think that the people who are, the men who are involved in the pro-life movement genuinely care about women. They see what happens after women go through abortions. They see the trauma that they face. They recognize that 50% of all abortions are killing little women, young girls. 50% every single time you have an abortion, you're going to kill a boy or a girl. And 50% of the time you're getting a girl. So if you're truly about women's empowerment and not about the men, you're taking out the lives of small women who should be protected, small women who could you know, change the world in that, in that sense. But then also, I think what they see, um, the pro-abortion side and a more sinister side um, angle, is that the statistics show that 80% of women will choose life if they know that they have a man supporting them. If they know that a guy, their boyfriend, their father, their husband, whoever's in the picture, will support them, they'll end up choosing life. And, and I think that's such an important statistic because if you know that a man can help a woman change, then your bottom line, your bottom dollar at an abortion industry is going to drop when men start being involved. So what do they do? They try to scare you and make you feel like when you're coming to the pro-life movement saying like, hey, I care about that child. I don't want them torn limb from limb. I don't want them suffocated. I don't want them starved. When you start showing that you care about those children, they realize that you have power, that men, men have power in a good way. Women have power in a good way, in different ways. But these women need support. They need men to rise up alongside of them and say, hey, you're not alone. I'll financially support you. I'll help you. Um, Men also in pregnancy centers, they need the fathers to come in and counsel. There's so much strength in the pro-life movement of men 
that I think they're trying to do everything they can to undercut that power and make men feel ashamed rather than being like, wow, I'm standing up for these vulnerable children. And as a man, like I should be. And instead they're saying, no, like you're being selfish and you're trying to control me. And guys are like, whoa, whoa, whoa. there's already so much about men being controlling and abusive. I'm too scared to even say anything. And so it works. And so they back off. And it's like, no, 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 you are so important. You can make such a difference. You might be the only male voice who can help her choose life. Fascinating. So I guess, so in your opinion, is that then the best thing outside of kind of legislative activism and what we can do there, but just on a cultural level and a social level, is that where the pro-life movement needs to improve? where men are actively, because I, I hear it said a lot from people on the left where they're, they're using this argument of you only support life in the womb, but then after life, you don't actually care about these people. Like, is there work to be done mostly from men showing that they support women and, you know, not skipping out when they're, um, when they're pregnant? Absolutely. I think, I think a lot of conservatives, I think there's two sides of that. I think a lot of conservatives are getting pushed back for trying and that's where that argument comes from. But then there are a lot of boyfriends who, when they hear they're pregnant, they're like, oh, I'll pay for your abortion. So the conservative men just need to say, you know, I'm not going to be afraid of what you say. You can call me abusive. You can call me controlling. People say nasty things to me all the time, too. What you have to realize is, you know what, in good conscience, in good faith, I know what I, that I know that I know. I'm not trying to control you. I'm trying to save you from trauma. I'm trying to save you from the hardships that you're going to face. I'm also trying to save your small child from being killed. And if you know that what you're doing is right and it isn't about control, then it's just false. It's like someone calling you a liar and you're like, well, this is true. So you have nothing on me. Like you just proceed in good faith and good character because you know that what they're saying is false. And then, yes, as a culture, we need to first respect sex more. People aren't respecting that. People are just hooking up with whoever they want. And then they're using abortion as another form of birth control. So, yes, don't sleep with someone unless you know that they're man enough to raise a child with you. And even further, know that they're man enough to marry you first. Like that's the, ultimately, you know that they respect you enough if they're willing to marry you. That's, that's the bottom line. And then that will help when you end up pregnant in a situation, um, at least knowing that this guy has character. This guy will support me. Don't sleep with him if you think he's going to run. Like that's, that's a really good line for women. And that's a good line for men. Like if you think she's going to abort your child, don't sleep with her. Like that's a very, very good line to start with. And then stop viewing abortion as a secondhand birth control. Cause it's not, it's not birth control. You're already pregnant. The baby's already coming to existence. Um, and then somehow supporting and educating these men. And that's, that's part of what I do. I get into a lot of high schools and I go and teach young men and young women about being responsible with their bodies and then about when you have a life and how to protect that life. So I really do think that the more we can educate these young men specifically on how to respect the women around them, but then also knowing what life in the womb is. Because a lot of these people that argue, hey, like this is just a six week clump of cells. But if they would have been taught before they were pregnant, before they were scared that this is a life, this is a valuable life worth protecting, they're going to be a lot more likely to choose life if they at least have heard the pro-life message. If they've heard, you know, that the baby's heartbeat is already beating at six weeks, that at the first single cell, all the genetic information is already in place. Um, these boys and girls need this education. Um, and I think the men will rise up more when they know more, when they feel strong enough to support, when they feel knowledgeable enough to make a difference. I wanted to ask you, so one of the things that I've encountered in my life, uh, a couple years ago, I was a missionary for my church for a few years. I uh, was a Spanish-speaking missionary in Washington State. And one of the things that I ran into a lot um, 
in order to be baptized into our church, you actually cannot have had an abortion. If you've had an abortion, you have to go through a little bit more of a kind of a repentance process just to make sure, because it's just really like strict doctrine in our church that you can't do it. And uh, because of that, as a missionary, I had to ask people point blank if they had had an abortion. And uh, a lot of young women, like really young women that um, I was a part of baptizing, said they had an abortion, especially when they were living in Mexico. And the sorrow that they had was just incredible. I wanted to ask you what kind of support is out there and what organizations exist to help dissuade people from being, from, you know, having an abortion and kind of showing them how much sadness actually comes from, from killing your child. Well, a lot of people think that earlier you talked about how once the baby's born, nobody cares. It is shown that the pro-life movement cares. Our pregnancy centers are pro-life pregnancy centers that help women, um, with diapers, formula, cribs, you know, some people help them financially, help them find housing. They give them parenting classes. They give them budgeting classes. They will even support them sometimes financially up to two years after the kid is born. So, and, and those pro-life pregnancy centers outnumber abortion facilities five to one. Like we have them all across the nation in, in at basically every major city all across the U.S. Thousands of them, thousands and thousands of them. Those centers are where people need to go. Those centers are, you're pregnant, you don't know what to do, you've already, like, what you consider made a mistake, you have a child who can ultimately be one of your biggest blessings, and they need to be guided through that. The husbands need to learn how to be fathers, the wives need to learn how to be mothers, they might not have a car, they might have never, you know, learned how to budget, but they can learn all these things, they can be provided for, and if all they need are these financial um financial stability, these pregnancy centers are coming alongside them. So I would recommend these women, if they're in need, find a pregnancy center, reach out to me, reach out to any pro-life advocate, and they will connect you with a pregnancy center. But I don't want to leave it there because you're talking about women who are grieving. On the other end of that, women who are grieving, who've been through abortion, a lot of them will need counseling. And I would recommend Rachel's Vineyard. Rachel's Vineyard is a place where they can go and they talk about how many abortions they had, when they had, if they know the gender, all these different things, and they help them recover from their abortions. Because if you think about it, all these women who are grieving for years, their miscarriages, but then the women who've had abortions feel that same grief, if not way deeper, because they caused that, they caused the death of their child. They need help. They, they need to know that there's forgiveness in Jesus Christ. They need to know that there's hope and healing, that they can make a difference in the world beyond what's happened. Um, and that, so I, I would really recommend pregnancy centers on the front end, if you, if the woman is pregnant, receiving help, and then on the other end, Rachel's Vineyard to get hope and healing after the abortion. One of the, I would say one of the kind of central questions and debates right now in the pro, I mean, and it's probably been this way for just so long uh, in, you know, the, the pro-life movement is, is rape and, and, and incest, even though they're pretty much mostly the same thing. Um, is that an appropriate exception uh, for abortion. I'm just curious to hear, I, I think I already know what your, what your opinion is on it, but I want to hear your argument. Why or why not is that appropriate? So the first thing I always say is we need to look at that woman and just give her the most empathy, the most care. The trauma that she's been through is something that most people could never fathom. Like we just have to start there. Like there is nothing justifiable. Like we need to punish that rapist to the fullest extent of the law, everything that can be done to put him behind bars and deal with what he's done. But now what we have to see is that if this woman has become pregnant by the horrible act of the father, we have to realize now there's two victims. There's the mother who was raped, and then there's the child who will potentially be aborted, and they'll become the second victim. But 
there's this lady named Rebecca Kiesling, and she's one of my favorite people when it comes to this discussion. She was actually born out of rape. So her father raped her mother and she was born. And she goes around the country and she says, is my life not worthy? Like, was, am I not worth protecting? Even today, outside the womb, should I have been killed because of the actions of my father? And as she started this ministry, she has this huge ministry working with rape victims who have become pregnant and other rape victims who haven't. And she says what she sees with these women is that the women who choose to have an abortion feel like not only was a, an act committed upon them that was so horrific, but then they committed a second act of violence. Like a second act of violence is being committed on a small, innocent child who had nothing to do with their conception. It was completely out of their control. And then they not only deal with the trauma of the rape, but then they deal with the trauma of what they did to their child. She said on the other end of that, though, the hopeful side is women either put it up for adoption, and I'm not undermining the pain of what that would be, the difficulty of, of carrying that child for nine months and putting that child up for adoption, but they find hope in giving a good home to their children. And then the other women who were raped, became pregnant, and kept the child, they said that the child wasn't a reminder because a lot of people are like, oh, you'll see his face. And that child's like, no, they say that it, it, they didn't see his face and it wasn't a reminder of him. Instead, after all the trauma, after all the depression, after all that they had been through because of his act, that child gave them hope and the ability to move on. It gave them purpose after what had happened versus taking away their life versus making it harder. And so there, there is so much hope on the other end of that. And then I want to end by saying um, on that idea that when when a rapist is sent to prison for what he's done, he doesn't even receive the death penalty. He's not even killed in the United States of America for rape. But we want the child, the innocent child who has nothing to do with their conception to then be killed. It doesn't make any sense. Why would he, the guilty party, not be killed, but then the innocent party is? It doesn't make any sense logically. One of the kind of common themes, I think, throughout history, and, and it's fascinating how this is changing, is that Christian conservatives have largely been painted as kind of anti-science and uh, kind of rely, even though I don't think they're personally at odds, but kind of just all faith, you know, blind faith and no science. But what you see now is that the conservative movement is being pushed largely by Christians and especially in issues like gender theory and abortion, the science is conclusive. Like we, we know it's a life. Um, how can, like, what resources have you seen? How can we convince people? I think the scientific arguments are very strong um, in favor of the pro-life, you know, movement. So how do we convince people of this where they're, when they're at the same time, there's so much misinformation from the legacy media and other bad actors like Planned Parenthood that, you know, these are just clumps of cells. I would just sort it out. I would take each claim and think through each claim that they say. I would realize that 96% of biologists agree that life begins at the very moment of fertilization when that egg and sperm combine. So let's say, for an example, let's say someone says, well, I've heard this argument. Let's A chicken has an egg and we have no guilt eating the eggs, do we? Because they're just chicken eggs. And it's like, this is the most, just think about it. It's nonsense. Obviously that egg wasn't fertilized or we wouldn't be having a you know an over easy egg. When the egg is fertilized is when we get a child. So that might seem like a big deal. Oh, that we're eating chicken. Like this a silly argument overwhelms people really quickly, I found. But if you just think about the science and you think about the fact that 96% of biologists agree that life begins at the moment of fertilization. If you study DNA textbooks, embryology studies, biology textbooks, all of them agree, conclusively agree that life begins at the moment of fertilization. There's no question on that. Then you start getting into, well, they don't have a heartbeat. They don't have all these things. And it's just, just think about it. They don't have a heartbeat, but they can grow their own heart. Like they don't have a brain yet, 
but they grow their own brain. This is a unique human being, distinct from the mother and the father, who has all the genetic information in place to make them exactly who we are today. And I talked about this a little bit in my speech, but we don't look at a newborn and say, why can't you hold your head up? We don't fault them for what they, they aren't supposed to be doing. And yet we look at the same baby inside the womb and we say, you know, you're 36 weeks. Why, why can't you survive? Like, why aren't you, why aren't you supported by yourself now? Well, you look at 20 week old babies before viability and we look at them and say, why can't you, why can't you survive? Why can't you X, Y, and Z? And it's like, no, no, no. They are exactly where they're supposed to be. They are doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing. When they're learning to grow, when they're developing that heart, even before it pumps for the first time, they are doing what is mind blowing. They are grow literally growing a heart, something we can't even do today. Like we aren't even capable of doing that today, but they have that ability. And then they learn how to pump it, pump that heart. And then each of those cells can figure out whether, or whether scientists are still boggled, their minds are boggled by how this happens, but that these cells can become kidneys and these cells can somehow figure out how to become a brain. And these cells can become, you know, your teeth and your tongue. And they, they don't even understand how complex this science is. And so I really do think that it is so simple to be pro-life. Sometimes it feels scary because there's a bully tactic of what you were saying, like, you don't care, you're trying to control us. Put all those aside. Is this a child in the womb or is it not? Scientifically it is, therefore there is nothing that can justify the killing of them. You can use all your fancy language, you can say all the things you want to do about me being controlling or being wrong or being on the wrong side of history, it doesn't matter. I know that there's a child in the womb. I know that these child children are being ripped apart limb from limb, they're being starved of nutrients, they're receiving lethal injections, all of these things happening without even the, the simple, simple kindness, human kindness of a pain med. Like, just, just break down the most basic parts of their arguments, and they very quickly fall apart. Once I, get, once I as a pro-lifer, got beyond the fear of what they would say about me, got beyond the fear of, of someone saying something nasty about me online, once I got past that and I was like, no, 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 like, we are scientifically correct. These are children. These children feel pain, a lot of them beyond 20 weeks. These children need our protection there was nothing that could keep me quiet anymore. So I think really just taking a step back, you don't have to fire at them right away. Just think about what they said, break it down, and then it all falls apart. Every pro-abortion argument quickly falls apart when you just think about it with science and logic. And then I also wanna to add to that, I am a person of faith, and if you're a person of faith out there, there is nothing ashamed, like to be ashamed about. People will say to me, oh, you're a Christian, so you're just trying to control us, and you have this weird Christian nationalist belief, all the nonsense that they put out there. I proudly say, I am a Christian. I do believe biblically that I am on point with what God has to say, that God wants to protect life in the womb. Yes, but if you'd like to have a discussion separate from that, purely out of science, I can have that discussion too. So we have science on our side and we have God on our side and I couldn't ask for much more. I love that. Um, yeah, I, as, <laughs> I feel the exact same way. I, it's, it's not even, I, I almost find it too simple and too easy to argue against abortion. It really is as simple as, it's life, so why the heck, like, why, why does anyone have a right to end it? Um, I wanted to ask, you mentioned marriage a little bit earlier and kind of an abstinence. I recently saw a graph that kind of just on each state had the average age of when someone gets married in that state. In my home state of Utah, it was about, it was like 25 and a half years old. Um, and in most states, I think the average was like 30 years old. I'm wondering, do you think that that is a problem? Do you think that that's kind of gone? At, oh, I know it's gone up over the years, but do you think that um, it should go down? And do you think that if people get married younger, that that will contribute to uh, a healthier pro-life society? 
I do. And, and I'm not promoting people just getting married young willy-nilly just to get married. Like, that's not the idea. The idea is that you aren't sleeping around. Therefore, your eyes are more open. If you're sleeping around, you're just clearly distracted by everything else that's going on in your life. But if you're dating somebody, for instance, when I dated my husband, he told me right off the bat, he said, I, I don't know if we're going to get married, but I'm not going to date somebody who I wouldn't want to marry. Like, this is my intention. And if we treat people with enough respect to know, like, he's not going to mistreat me. He's not going to expect anything from me before we're married. All these things. Then we actually get to know each other. We get to know if we like how the other person talks. We get to know if we like all the silly things, if we, all these silly things that you can't see if you're sexually active with that person. You miss those things because it's so distracting, obviously. But if you get to know that person, if you actually get to know who they are as a person and then also get to know, are they a person of faith? If you're a person of faith, find a person of faith. Know do, what do we believe. Go through. My dad gave me tons of questions before I got married. Do you agree on this and this and this and this and this? And so before you get married, do your research. Know who they are. Don't just hop into it because you want to be married. But on the other end, a lot of these people aren't getting married because they're sleeping around so much that it's just kind of they're going through serial relationships. It's very toxic. Um, a lot of people are facing depression. There's all these things that are attached to this culture, a uh, uh, hookup culture. And if we are careful with who, who we're with, we're careful with who we give our time to. And it, it just, in a culture that's so obsessed with being clean and healthy and all these things, but then they'll sleep with anybody, it boggles my mind. So if people will learn to respect themselves, it's not a matter of control. It's not a matter of, of Christians trying to control you and tell you what to do. It's a matter of respect yourself enough to find yourself a partner who will treat you right for life. And part of that is respecting you until marriage respecting you and getting to know you and understanding, you know, so many different facets of your personality, so many different facets of the way you believe or what you don't believe. When all those things come into place, even if you are 35 when you get married, that's fine. But respect yourself enough that if you're 22, you're, you're going to find the right person because you've taken the time to find the right person. But yeah, I do think respecting yourself will actually encourage people to get married younger because they aren't just perpetually sleeping around and perpetually in this dating culture where there's no commitment. There's no, there's no level of needing to move on beyond commitment because they already live together. They're essentially in the eyes of the law married. Uh, yeah. It's a, it's a topic that I'm particularly passionate about. I, um, uh, me and my wife got married just six months ago and it's funny because thank you. My, my whole life, I've been very conservative, but in the last six months that we've been married, both of us have become even more conservative because it's an, it's an amazing way to live your life. And it's hard to live that way and not just want everyone around you to have that. One of the things that was hardest for me at, um, and, and it's happened at several YAF conferences now, is I'll go and me and my wife at this last one where we saw you, we were the only ones married. And people are young there. And like you said, I don't support people just, you know, jumping into marriage, but I'm kind of the opinion, like if we're conservatives, like let's act like conservatives. Family is number one. Uh, so anyway, I just, I find that interesting. I hope that the conservative movement at large will kind of gravitate towards uh, a priority of, of marriage in a way that I don't think the young people are quite grasping. Um, I wanted to ask you really quick about, so Lately, we've seen a lot of moderates, unfortunately, and even conservatives in states like Kansas vote on pro-abortion amendments enshrining the right to abortion uh, in their state. What What is happening there? Um, like, what is your analysis of that? Why is that happening? And how can we change that? 
Okay, so I'm a Kansas native, so that's actually super close to home. I'm from Kansas, I live in Florida now, but I love Kansas. Kansas is full of mostly conservative farmers, friendly, wonderful Midwesterners, and then we have Kansas City, which obviously a lot of times the city will flip the vote. But from being home back in Kansas during the Vote Yes campaign for life, I, what I saw was lots of outside money coming in, filling almost every single billboard with Rosie the Riveter saying vote no and people tearing down yard signs that anything vote yes was stolen and torn down. It was a very like dark, dark battle where I was actually talking to my dad about it. He's like, I don't even know what to do. Like they steal our signs. Of course, we're not going to steal theirs. They bring in tons of dark money that we don't have. I don't know how to counter. Like I don't know how to counter that. I don't have the money. And so I really do think a lot of this is education. A lot of this is what they see. They see vote no and protect women. And they think, oh, I'm protecting women. I actually talked to a woman at the polls who was out front saying, vote no, protect women, vote no. We just need rights to our reproduction. And I was like, so you're, you know, you're, you're trying to get abortion passed, just trying to put it out there for her in front of people. And she's like, no, I just want to protect women's rights to reproduce. And I'm like, but what about when the child's already been reproduced? Like, you're not protecting their right to reproduce. You're protecting their, once they have a child, the right to kill that child. And I said it plainly. She's like, no. And she wouldn't even come out in plain language, kind of what we talked about earlier, where they use convoluted language. They're trying to confuse you. They're trying to make it so that you feel like I'm protecting women's right to reproduce. No one should be forced to reproduce. It's like, no, no, no. You've already reproduced. You already have a child. Let's actually put the facts on the table. Let's act like adults and actually discuss what's going on. And Kansas was heartbreaking for me because I was like, surely Kansas, like surely conservative, sweet Midwestern Kansas will vote yes. But when I was there and everything said vote no and everywhere was vote no and every yard sign was torn down that was vote yes. But very quickly, I was like, this, this might not go as I was thinking. And then sure enough, they, they voted no and um, made the abortion law so, so extreme in Kansas. And so uh, I think that's how a lot of states are. Um, like I said earlier, that's why I work so much in education. If you just sit down with people and break down the fact that it's not reproductive rights, the child's already been reproduced, this is in a very gentle way, these are abortion procedures that will happen. This is this is what will happen to these children. This is what the law said. This is the law we're trying to pass. Their minds change. Um, an organization I would always recommend to watch their stuff is live action. Very gentle with a lot of the content that they create, but very eye-opening. Um, and I, I think if content like that could be shared, could be spread, um, a lot more in schools, a lot more uh, when elections happen, I think a lot more people's eyes will be opened. Because if you can use fancy enough language, people just want to do what they think is right. I think a lot of people do have good intentions. I just think their intentions are so messed up when they haven't actually done the research to understand what's happening or what they're voting no on or yes on. So along those lines, obviously for Republicans, the last three major elections haven't gone so well. Um, since 2016, pretty much. That's the last time the Republicans had a successful uh, nationwide election, I would say. Do you think, and, and this has been said a lot, do you think that abor abortion is tearing down Republicans on other issues? That because it hasn't been particularly popular to be pro-life, that Republicans are going to keep losing? Um, I do think that when you have Obviously, a conservative president in will lose in other elections because people see, oh, the president is conservative. Okay, let's vote in more liberals. I do think that there's a natural swing that can that can explain some of that. But I don't think abortion has been something that's been a part of the conservative movement for a very long time. So all of a sudden, it's tearing people apart. I don't think is an accurate explanation. I think it's a, it's a ploy to get people to care less or to get people to compromise and say, okay, I'll, I'll shift on the, I'll shift a little bit because I want to get reelected. And I honestly think. That what people want is someone who's going to stand up and say, you know, I'm going to be staunchly pro-life. I'm going to protect 
children from having minor surgeries. I'm going to just lay out their platform and be strong and be bold. And I genuinely think that's what people are after. I think that's why Ron DeSantis has been so popular in Florida, not obviously in the presidential election, but in Florida is because he was, he was unafraid. And so I think if people are unafraid and keep being unafraid, we'll, we'll see a comeback. Um, I don't think it's abortion that's splitting, that's splitting us up. I think always, I, I do, I do think Sometimes when, when abortion is on the table, there will be divide. But one thing I like to think about or discuss is that even when we were trying to outlaw slavery, that was clearly so wrong, it divided our country. Division doesn't necessarily mean that you're, what, what you're doing is wrong. It might mean that you need to push harder in what is right and push harder until you can achieve. Um, obviously, we want to keep unity in our country, but push harder until we can achieve equality for every single human being and respect and dignity and protection for our most vulnerable, vulnerable children. So do you support the kind of battle on a federal side or do you think the battle is is in the states ultimately? Um I think that it's a fe- I think it's a federal battle. I think that pushing it back to the states was a good thing because every state wasn't mandated. So I rejoice when Roe was overturned. I, I think a lot of these are, are complex rather than like a one-line answer. When Roe was overturned, I was one of the first people to be celebrating and saying, "Yay." Like cuz that meant that we weren't mandated on a federal level that every single state had to allow abortion through all 9 months no matter what between the doctor and the mother, no matter what reason. But then, now that it's passed, I'm like, okay, now we have some ground. Obviously, a lot of other states are choosing, are, are siding with our pre-Roe ideals. Like, that's what they're siding with, those the same ideas. But states like Florida have more restrictive. States like Alabama, we have more restrictions in some of those states, which is good. That's an improvement. But now I think it's the job of the federal government to protect life. We're not talking about some small law. That is one of their jobs. I think that's why civil rights was a good thing because it was the federal government's job to make sure that every single person was treated with dignity and respect. And I think that there are very few roles that the federal government government absolutely has to do. I'm very much for a more state power, smaller government, smaller centralized government, bigger state governments. But if the federal government itself isn't protecting life, then what is their most fundamental job? Like they have, they have very few roles and protecting life is one of the biggest roles that they should have. And I would be a hundred percent for a federal law protecting life from the moment of fertilization because it relying on each state to do it will never happen. All right. I want to get into kind of what I'm most excited to hear about. I wanted to hear about your, your general beliefs and, and you've said a lot of things that I just really hadn't considered. So, and I'm sure a lot of people listening, um, feel the same way, but I really want to hear about the 3000 mile run slash bike across America. Uh, just tell me like what inspired that? How did it go? I don't know that much about it. So just, just go for it. Okay. So I'll back up. So when I was in fifth grade, I had an extremely passionate pro-life teacher. She was my fifth grade teacher, but every Bible verse we memorized, everything we did was pro-life somehow. I don't even know how she did it. And something in that fifth grade classroom as a nine-year-old little girl, I knew my life was changed forever. And I don't know, I couldn't put my finger on it. I didn't know what I would do. I was just a little girl. But from then on, I was passionately pro-life. I was passionate about protecting children from harm in in, in any way I could. Um, And as I got older, I started um, a group of high school girls to write birth mothers who had chosen life for their children. We wrote them encouraging letters. I tried to do all these things to help in the pro-life movement. But then when I became a sophomore in college, I was studying to be a math teacher. I absolutely loved math. And I was like, okay, God, I'm kind of at I'm kind of at a crossroads. I love life in the womb. I love supporting women through pregnancies. I love teaching and all these things. 
but God, I'm sending to me a math teacher and you haven't really opened any doors for me to be a pro-life advocate. I don't even know what that is. I'm not a doctor to save lives. I'm not a nurse who can help. I'm definitely not a public speaker. I told God that I'm not a public speaker. There is no way that I can help. And so I said, and the sophomore year, I well, was running a lot. I was training. I, I've always been a runner. And it's a really good time for me to pray and just seek God and have quiet time with God. And so I went for this 10-mile training run. And I was praying again. I was just like, you know, God, I am so tired. I'm just really honest in my prayers. I was like, I'm so tired in feeling like I'm becoming a math teacher. And this is what I'm preparing for. And I'm so excited. But then having this giant pull in my heart that these children are being killed every single day by the thousands and I'm doing nothing. And yet I tell my friends and they know that I'm that pro-life person who, who really cares and who wants to make a difference. But I honestly feel like a hypocrite. What am I doing? And so at the end, this climax of this run, I'm finishing in a sprint. I just told God, I was like, God, either give me a way to live this out or take it from me. I will be the best math teacher you've ever seen as the best math teacher I can possibly be. And I'll do it for your glory. But if you want me to do something pro-life, show me what it is and I'll do it. Anything, I'll do it. And I finished in that sprint. And as I was finishing that sprint, I felt God lay it on my heart, run across America to end abortion. As like, you know, a 19 year old sophomore in college with no money, you know? And I was like, okay. And I just knew exactly what I was supposed to do when I graduated. And so I finished my math degree. I loved it. I ran. I started waking up every morning at 5 a.m. to run, you know, 10, 13 miles before classes got started. I was working. I was barely making my bills. Um, but I was recruiting kids on campus to join my team. I was, you know, doing um, teaching and speakings, um, like kind of secret, like inviting people and be like, hey, like I know we're here for school, but like let's have a pro-life meeting. And we would, I would pack out the rooms and teach on the pro-life movement and just share the joy of the beauty of life in the womb. Um, and then comes graduation and I have done everything I can. I've contacted everybody I can. And we very quickly realized like we don't have much support. We have basically like $200, which for a bunch of broke college students in 2016, like that's a lot of money, like 200 bucks. You're like, wow, you know, but honestly, it's not enough to get either of my teams, any of my teammates to either coast to get started. <coughs> so what we ended up doing was we just went home to my parents' house and I took a month and I said, you know, God, this is what you called me to. I have told every person in my life, every professor, every Panera person handing me a cup of coffee. I've told every random person in my life that this is my calling and I'm going to do it, but you have to provide and I'm going to trust that you're going to provide. And I'm going to do all the grunt work. I'm going to call everybody. I'm going to fundraise. I'm going to do everything. But you're going to have to provide. And literally, we hope, we, we felt called to throw a celebration that we were leaving, even without any su supplies. And that day, God brought in $2,000 and a conversion van for us to live in. So I started right there in Kansas. I literally, with very little funds, started on my parents' front steps. And I started running west. And I told God, I will run as far as I can. And when the funds run out, I'll go home. But if you keep providing, I will keep running. And soon I ran all the way across Kansas, 400 miles, living in a van with my team, you know, speaking to whoever would open their doors. Got to Colorado and faced the Rocky Mountains as like a girl from the plains of Kansas trying to run 11,000 plus feet. And God started opening speaking engagements. And what I told God I couldn't do, I became. I became a public speaker very quickly, um, teaching in schools and churches all across pregnancy centers, all across the whole state of Colorado. And... Um, God gave me strength all the way through those mountains at, at points where I didn't think I would be strong enough to run um, through the heat of summer, through the cold of winter in the mountains um, until I made it through across Utah, across Nevada, across Arizona, and eventually to California. And one, one main story that I love to share 
is when I was in California and I had run over 1600 miles at this point. I had lived in a van, I had been stalked, I had been chased, I had been afraid, I had been you know, homeless, I had been hungry, I had stayed with strangers for many nights, I had been fed randomly by people I didn't know, I had been taken care of, my faith had been so strengthened. Um, but when we got to California, they denied me interstate or denied me access to run on I-15. All the other states had given me permission to run on the interstate, but California said no. So rather than being able to run on the flat land of, Cal of the California interstate, I had to run on the parts that, you know, they blow out for the interstate to make it flat. So there's these giant sand hills with cactus and, you know, all these thorns and rocks. <coughs> and I have to run these hills. And as I'm running up these giant sand hills, you know, running in sand, every step you take, you go backwards. And I'm going so slow. I kept thinking, am I even running? Like, am I even running? Like, I've run hundreds and hundreds of miles. And this is just impossible that it was reaching almost 100 degrees. I was drinking multiple liters during each run. I was just caked in salt all over my face because <coughs> the sun was just constantly beating down. And when I made it up to the top of the hills, as I went back down, again, it was so steep that I constantly felt in the stand I was going to fall on my face and tumble down these giant cactus-covered hills. And then I did. I tumbled and I fell head over feet, head over feet, all the way down this giant rocks and cactus cut all along the way. And I landed in the bottom of a ditch. And as I sat up in the ditch, I looked down. I'm covered in dirt, haven't showered in days, haven't had a host in a long time. And I see blood just seeping out of my cuts. And I'm just cut up all over, beat up, dirt everywhere, sweaty, thirsty, just sitting there. And I just began to weep. I just wept and I said, God, like I've run 1600 miles. I'm alone in a ditch. <coughs> and I don't know that anybody has any idea even where I am right now. Is this what you've called me to? This right here in a ditch. I haven't had a speaking engagement in a long time. Am I making a difference? Am I doing what you have called me to? And in that ditch, completely alone, I really felt God's comfort. That this is going to be the battle. This is going to be just like abortion. This is going to be how we take down abortion. We are going to summit mountains and we're going to feel highs and good things and celebrate reasons to celebrate, you know, reaching 11,000 feet in the mountains in winter. But there's also going to be deserts where you're alone and it's hard and people don't get why you're out there. But if you keep persevering, if you keep pushing on, if you're, if you're willing to rise just one more time, just one more mile for the pro-life movement, we're going to see abortion end in America. And so I did, I rose up, I brushed the, the cactus, pulled cactus thorns, brushed my legs off, brushed the dirt off, and I continued to run until I reached the ocean where I dove into the Pacific Ocean. And that 1,700 miles was so incredibly rewarding and difficult and taught me so much about God and about the pro-life movement. Um, so <coughs> I finished that portion. My team and I drove back in our old van back to the Kansas border where I began, and I began going east. Um, so... Another challenge arose of having run 1,700 miles with, you know, no showers hardly and, you know, no, no recovery, living in a van with two teammates sleeping on either side of me, just a difficult situation. And I very quickly discovered I developed very severe knee injuries. I kept trying to run, and, but the most I could get in was two to five miles a day, which before I had been running anywhere from 10 to 20 plus miles a day, every single day, five days a week. So to do two to five, this run was going to take me forever to finish. And it was so painful. So I went to a doctor and she basically told me that I had run too much, too far, too hard. And if I didn't stop running, I'd never run again. So that's pretty serious for someone who's pretty much obsessed with running. I've, if I could run every day for the rest of my life, I'd be a happy camper. 
And so I was pretty, pretty devastated. And so I went and got advice and everyone in my life said, you know, you should, you should finish on a bike. Like there's no way you could finish this um, and not destroy your knees. So with tears in my eyes, I hopped on a bike and began the last 1200 miles of the journey. And what was amazing is <clears throat> what had seemed like such a loss to me and such a failure to me, God ended up using for so much good. Because at that point, speaking engagements came in nonstop. I was starting to fly all over the country to do speeches while finishing this, finishing my journey. I traveled hours north and hours south of my route and spoke all over and was able to actually spread the pro-life message to people all across the country. And I never would have had the energy because running, you know, four or five hours a day is obviously extremely exhausting, nor would I have had the time if I had remained running. And so even in this difficulty, even in the hardship of, of an injury, even God could still work good through that. And he did. And so I ended up finishing that last 1200 on a bike. I ran every once in a while trying to get, trying to see if my knees were good, but they never recovered until um, a few years later, but I was able to finish. Um, I jumped in the Atlantic Ocean and I gave a speech on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. Um, and and uh, over a hundred people came to hear me from all over the country who had supported me along the way and just stood on the steps of the memorial as we thank God for his goodness and we prayed for an end to abortion. And I got to see so many lives saved. I got to see so many people inspired um, and it gave me a platform to be able to do what I do today. And I, I was just so thankful for the journey, for the hardships and for the good of the journey. That's an amazing story. Yeah, I don't, <laughs> when you said, uh, when you talk about biking, I was just thinking biking across America <laughs> sounds a lot more fun than running. I don't know if I could, <laughs> I'd probably make it unless like 10 you're a miles. Runner. Unless you're a runner, <laughs> unless I guess. A... <laughs> I'm not, I'm not a runner. So that's, I'm very impressed. Uh, that was a very emotional story. Thank you for sharing that. I think there's a lot of people out there who want to, um, they want to be a part of different, you know, social movements and in, in the conservative side, but very few are really willing to put their money where their mouth is, or I guess, step forward with faith, um, in a way that you did. So I think it's very inspiring. And I think that there are a lot of people that, you know, I hope will follow your example and do the same. Uh, pretty much my last question for you is, uh, I wanted to ask you other than abortion, what issue on the right are you also really passionate about? Cause I would say, I, I'd say probably abortion is my number one issue as well, but you know, there, I know there's so many for me, so I'm sure there's a few for you as well. Yeah. So obviously abortion is my number one. And then I would say, um, for me personally, as a mother, the biggest thing that's risen for me lately is protecting our children, um, being present mothers and fathers who are involved in the decisions that are made about our children with all the gender ideology that's being pushed. I am an extremely protective. Like I don't have any of the main, I don't have any of the channels that people let their kids watch. My kids don't watch anything unless it's been previewed. Um, I'm very specific about um, anything that they see, anybody that they see in a very good way. Um, and I just try to let them be little. I try to let them play in the mud and I try to let them, you know, be outside. And um, I just try to do everything I can to make sure that they are protected because that's my job. That's our job as parents is not to let the state step in and raise our children for us. So when people attack, oh, you don't care about children outside the womb, I'm like, actually, it's the complete opposite. I am a mama bear when they're inside the womb and I'm a mama bear when they're outside the womb. And I want what's absolutely best for them. Just let them be little. 
let them be children. Let them not be indoctrinated um, with, with these weird books that, you know, you, I don't even take them to the library. I, I'm very specific about what books I pick for them and what morals I teach them and who I let them see in, in a very positive, protective, loving way. Because that's our job as a mom. And it's not the state's job to choose what books they read. It's not the state's job to hire a teacher who's going to indoctrinate them with things that I don't believe. It's That's why God gave them to us, is to raise them and to nurture them. So I would say that's that's my big second is when you do have children, don't just follow the culture and shove them off on their teachers. Know what they're learning, know what they're doing, know what they're reading, know who their friends are, and really um, seek out protecting them and actually raising those kids once they're brought into the world. Anna Strasberg, everybody, thank you so much for joining. Um, if you want to go check out her bu- her new book, One More, or I guess it, new book, uh, it's been out for a while, but it's called One More Mile. Uh, and yeah. you can check it out on Amazon.com. Anna, is there anywhere else that you can get it other than Amazon? Uh, yeah, on my website, um, if-life.org. Perfect. Go check it out. And thank you so much for watching. We'll see you next time.